The news for November 5 begins with this piece on the wonders of wireless. For the first time in Australia, the wonders of wireless telegraphy have been used to book seats at the theatre. This morning, a message was delivered at the Theatre Royal from HMS Powerful, reporting that a wireless message had been received from the RMS Moldavia, which is on the way to Sydney, requesting the Theatre Royal management to reserve four good stall seats or a box for next Wednesday night's performance of Tom Jones. The message came to the powerful at Port Melbourne and was, as stated, forwarded to the Theatre Royal. Perhaps the near future will see each of the ocean liners equipped with a box office for the booking of seats at the theatre by wireless. This piece from the Advertiser in South Australia. For November 5, 1910, this was the news. is a fortnightly podcast that takes the news from this date many years ago and shares it with you in one news bulletin. I'm Roderick Matthews, bringing you the stories from a time when Australians were booking theatre tickets on the line. Welcome back to another episode of This Was The News. This week, bringing pieces from 1910. Now, I'm sure there was plenty of news happening around this date of very important events and those sorts of things, but today's a Saturday back in 1910, and all the Saturday papers had short little tidbits about funny things here and there. So that's what this episode is filled with. The first piece on the Town Hall organ comes from the Daily Post in Hobart, Tasmania. It was decided some time ago by the City Council to install electric power for blowing the Town Hall organ. The work of installation has just been completed by Mrs J Fincherman's son of Melbourne and has been found to be very satisfactory. The organist now simply requires to turn on a switch and the instrument is ready for use. Yes, with that piece on electrical organs and booking theatre tickets over the telegraph, as was reported in the first article, it's uh, quite a high-tech time over in 1910. Meanwhile, the Kalgoorlie miner in WA was discussing the name of the town site. Mr Horan, MLA for the Yulgarn District, ridicules the state government's proposed name for the town site to be shortly sold. He has wired to the Federal Postmaster General, recommending the native name, so far as it is applicable to English spelling, of Dulina, which would combine remembrance of the principal in the venture with the Aboriginal meaning for plenty wood. Now, I included this piece because now we're trying to rename many places their original Aboriginal names, or at least bring them in conjunction with the Western names. And so many people kick up a fuss about this. But I love this piece from back in 1910 in Kalgoorlie when they're like, this place already has a name. It's Dulina. It means plenty wood. Let's leave it in place. I think that's a great attitude to have. Moving across the country now to Queensland, and we have a couple of reports of missing people. The Dolby Herald reported on this Robinson Crusoe. George Ogg, who was reported missing about the middle of August from Mackay, turned up on Sunday. During his couple of months' absence, spent in solitude near Imo, Ogg subsisted on shellfish, oysters and scraps of food washed ashore from passing steamers. He confined himself to the mangroves, thus avoiding the search parties. When found, he was very weak and went to the hospital. 
Meanwhile, a missing person story without such a positive outcome, this piece on the Yapoon mystery was from the Darling Downs Gazette. The solution of an almost forgotten mystery has been provided by the finding of a man's skeleton in the bush 22 miles from Yapoon and 9 miles from the coast and the identification of the remains as those of a man named Weldon. In the early part of this year, a motorboat containing a man named Weldon and another left Yapoon for a cruise in the bay. As the boat did not return in a reasonable time, a search was made, at first without effect, but later the harbourmaster left in the steamer Fitzroy, and after examining the coast, found the missing vessel inside, Cape Clinton, 80 miles to the north of Yapoon. She had been disabled and had drifted to that point, the men being able to do nothing. Only one man was in the boat, though, and the only food he had was a little rice and little or no water. The other man, Weldon, went ashore with some blankets, saying that he intended looking for some means of conveyance to Rockhampton. Since that day, he had not been heard of again, until the finding of the skeleton in the scrub. Portions of the swag and the clothes have been identified by Mrs Weldon of Mount Morgan as belonging to her son. The country around Cape Clinton is rough and scrubby and there is no habitation for many miles. The wanderer evidently had perished from want of food and from exhaustion as travelling in that district is very difficult. Moving on to news about other people now, and the Geelong advertiser had this headline of an incorrigible girl. Last week, a Colac girl named May Reville was the subject of a report to Superintendent Charles on an alleged criminal assault, evidence in support of which was not strong enough for a prosecution. On Thursday, she was the central figure in a series of cases arising out of an assault on her male escort, William Elman. Robert Powell, known locally as Baden, was fined £5 for assault and £2 for using obscene language. David O'Dowd was fined £2 for assault and Richard Danoon £2 for obscene language. The girl, Ravel, was sent to the reformatory. That's the appropriate punishment for a female. Off to the reformatory for your incorrigibleness. Meanwhile, the Gundagai Independent and Pastoral, Agricultural and Mining Advocate was reporting on all the important news back in 1910 with this piece all about people. Constable Bill Holt, burnt brown by the Never Never Sons, is holidaying out at Wargra. Dr Barlow, Anglican Bishop of Goulburn, is at present holidaying in Queensland. Two tumult young ladies, Miss Mary Downing and Miss Greta Potter, will shortly enter a convent for the purpose of adopting a religious life. Another case of appendicitis admitted to the hospital this week, the patient being Miss Martha Sheetha. Mr R Carlyle, admitted to the hospital this week, suffering from whooping cough, has developed pneumonia. Some 12 months ago, a young woman, a resident of Parks, whose teeth were causing her trouble, had 17 of them drawn. Before the gums had sufficiently healed to permit the artificial teeth being fitted, new teeth began to make their appearance, and every one of the 17 has now been replaced in this manner. Now, folks, whether that last one is a true story or not, I cannot confirm, but it certainly does sound like a bad dream. Meanwhile, the Dolby Herald in Queensland was reporting on playing bushrangers. 
A boy named Ralph Johnson was playing bushrangers with a companion near Hillsville, New South Wales, when the latter fired a revolver at him, a bullet landing in his stomach. The latter did not know the weapon was loaded. The injured boy is in the hospital in a critical condition. And we'll leave those two boys playing bushrangers for a bit of fun and have a short break. Just what was wanted. A cheap, quick, safe cleanser for washing mechanics overalls, aprons, paintwork, floors, softening hard water and more. The Velvet Soap people have introduced to Tasmania Kitchen's Extract of Soap in penny packets. Works like a charm, selling like hotcakes at all grocers. Smokers. Cultivate the habit of always asking for standard cigarettes. Famous for the sweet and delicate flavour and aroma. Agreed by expert judges to be the best cigarette on the market. Standard cigarettes. Back to the news now for November 5, 1910. And when we had a few strange medical cases before the break... I'm afraid it doesn't get much better with this from the Don Dorigo Gazette and Guy Fawkes Advocate in New South Wales. The headline for this article reads, Pathetic Case. And I thought that was a bit harsh, and you'll probably agree after I read it out, because I thought it was meaning pathetic as in inadequate, a very low standard, and they were having a go at the farmer's wife in this piece. But I had to look it up, and pathetic does have an alternate meaning of arousing pity, especially through vulnerability or sadness. And I thought, that's probably what they're referring to in 1910, and potentially that's the way the word was used back then. So please take the word pathetic in that light. The story of a pathetic incident in bush life comes from northern Queensland. Mrs Johnson, wife of Neil Johnson, a teamster residing at Horse Creek Tabletop, 15 miles from Croydon, went to mount a horse when it reared and threw her heavily to the ground. She crawled a distance of a 100 yards to her house. She had only three young children with her, and the place is on a lonely and unfrequented road, the nearest neighbour being a Chinese two miles away. The accident happened at 7 o'clock in the morning, and she lay there until 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Her right leg was broken, the splintered bone protruding through the flesh. When a teamster named Fraser passed along, he was intercepted by the children and made aware of the unfortunate woman's plight. She was conveyed to Croydon when it was found she had sustained a comminuted fracture and the doctor says it will be necessary to amputate the leg. Just makes you uh, cringe, doesn't it? An accident like that and suddenly the leg is gone. Yes, it's the dangers of having a horse as your major form of transport. Although, with this piece from the Goulburn Evening Penny Post, a motor car is just as dangerous. As Mr Arthur Ferner was attending to the motor car of Messrs O.H. Ferner & Co. at about half past one this afternoon, near the firm's premises, preparatory to starting, the vehicle, which was evidently out of order, began to reverse. Mr Ferner jumped on the step and endeavoured, but unsuccessfully, to stop the car, which backed right across Auburn Street and onto the footpath, and was eventually pulled up by meeting an obstruction in the shape of the front of Mr T. McAllister's saddlery shop. 
Considerable damage was done, the front being practically wrecked. The glass was smashed to atoms, the woodwork was bent inwards, and one of the sides of the door frame was almost snapped off, being left holding by a mere splinter. The woodwork was shifted from position, and the iron pillar was knocked backwards too. It was the pillar that, by presenting a good resistance, prevented the motor car from going boldly into the shop. Yes, motor cars are relatively new hazard back in 1910, and this piece on the age talks about the motor traffic. The question of whether the bad state of the road could be taken as an excuse for driving a motor car on the footpath was argued at the Caulfield Court yesterday before Dr Cole, PM, and Messrs Long, Sape, McGann and Garman. When Dr Hugh L. Murray was charged with having willfully driven a motor car on a footpath at Caulfield on on the 18th, H. Kent, the inspector, stated that he saw the defendant driving his motor car on the footpath in Holland Grove on the date in question. The defendant asked, what would you consider a lawful excuse for driving on the footpath? A witness said, I do not think there is any. Dr. Cole, the residing magistrate, said, no, there is no excuse. Continuing, the witness said the road was very sandy and in a bad state of repair. The defendant said that he was charged with having driven on the footpath willfully and without lawful excuse. He said that on the date in question, he went to see a patient in Holland Grove and his motor could not get along because of the sand. It had to be pushed a part of the way. On coming back, he drove onto the footpath because it was impossible for him to get the car through the sand. He submitted that that was an adequate reason for using the footpath. The bench decided to dismiss the case upon defendant paying two and six costs. Yes, it's probably a sorry state of affairs when the footpath's in better shape than the road, so maybe it does justify going along there instead. Although in 1910, I don't think the cars would have been going that fast along the footpath. And another piece on cars in the Headland Advocate from Port Headland, Western Australia, they're talking about storing electricity in a car. The problem of storing up electric force in a convenient form for motor traction has proved a difficult one. Storage batteries have been invented, but they have proved too heavy and cumbersome for practical use. Edison, the great American electrician, among others, has turned his attention to the subject. What was specially wanted was a storage battery, suitable for driving a motor car. Some nine years ago, Edison promised such a battery and set to work to make it. But as his invention was tested from time to time in practically running a car, it was found to develop faults. Profiting by experience, however, and further improving his battery, success seems at last to have crowned Edison's efforts. His new battery has been tested, and so far no serious difficulty has been developed. A streetcar carrying the new battery has been successfully run in West Orange. A description and figure of the new battery streetcar are given in a recent number of the Scientific American. The car, specially built for the purpose and made as light as possible, weighs only five tonnes. The storage batteries carried below the floor of the car work two 5-horsepower 110-volt motors. It will carry 26 passengers and can attain a speed of 15 miles an hour. One charging of the battery will enable the car to travel 150 miles. 
Or if we put those measurements both in metric, it's a car travelling 24 kilometres an hour for up to 240 kilometres. That's not bad for an electric car. So there you go, you thought the first electric car was a Tesla? Turns out it was an Edison. Let's take a short break before we come back to finish off this week's news. Women, for that cruel dragging pain in your left side, take Nemiotonic. Nemiotonic increases the appetite and strengthens the nerves. Nemiotonic regulates the functions and is the salvation of young women. Take Nemiotonic. Makes the hair grow. We are talking about airs hair vigour. Just note that word, airs. You're perfectly safe with it. No harm to you or to your hair. Makes the hair grow? It certainly does. Stops falling hair too. Remember, it's airs we are talking about. Ask your doctor about your hair and about airs hair vigour. Get his approval. Your own doctor and airs make a strong combination. It means faith, confidence and satisfaction. Ayers Hair Vigor does not colour the hair. And we're just about at the end of the news for November 5, 1910. But with the big news in America happening at the moment, I thought we'd cover a bit of American news that was printed in the Gympie Times and Mary River Mining Gazette from Queensland. This piece is all about American slang. There is a polite little fiction that nobody born outside the jurisdiction of Uncle Sam is capable of making a joke or seeing one. After you have lived for a while in the United States, you begin to realise that Americans really are proud of their humour. Hmm, sometimes I hope that what's going on at the moment is one big joke. Anyway, the article continues. The Americans consider their humour one of their most pronounced characteristics – and they believe they have more of it to the square inch than any other countries have to the square mile. The most pronounced form of humour that is the common everyday talk of Americans is slang and catchphrases. I don't know any catchphrases that uh, Americans use. Never heard any of them. Maybe if they did, they might start making America great again with these catchphrases. I'll, I'll keep reading the article, though. The vocabulary is changing all the time. An American, absent from his country for a couple of years, returns to hear new and strange words, make America great again, that have become the common talk of everybody, and by some mental process, he does not have to ask their meaning. He grasps it directly. Fake news, fake news. Several years ago, when an American wished to indicate to anyone that his presence was not desired, he said, 23. There you go, folks. If an American's presence is not desired, you simply have to say 23. 23. 23. Why he said 23 is a mystery. Then, as suddenly as it had come in, 23 went out of fashion, and its place was taken by skidoo, carrying the same meaning. After a while, Skidoo departed, and the present phrase is beat it. A contest now is proceeding for future popularity between beat it and jump on a pickle and be a wart. Beat it has an advantage in being simpler, but there is a sourness and unique insult about commanding a person to jump on a pickle and be a wart. 
which may bring victory. Sounds like that's something someone might need to tweet out there. Jump on a pickle and be a wart. Anyway, the article continues. If an American is arguing with someone, it is not customary to disagree politely with the adversary. It is, it is not customary to disagree politely with the adversary. Ah, not customary to disagree. Uh, correct usage demands the interposition of a little humour. And so the person, sure of his ground, says to the other, You're up in the air. Open your parachute. Or, get out of the gutter and let the water pass. Or, tell it to the king of Denmark. Another bit of good advice if you're dealing with American folks. If you're arguing and you disagree with them, just tell them, tell it to the king of Denmark. You know, If they say, I've been voted in president, you can say, tell it to the king of Denmark. The article goes on. A person who is argumentative and whose conversational powers are used combatively is said to chew the rag. Can't think of anyone like that. One who, while chewing the rag, works himself into a passion, is hot under the collar, while if his anger is caused by the remarks of someone else, the second person has got his goat. Thus, a street corner socialist orator, while chewing the rag and getting hot under the collar, may become violently enraged by a question flung at him, to be calmed by a friendly shout of, Hey Bill, don't let him get your goat. That paragraph was verbatim, folks. To finish off, an individual who is untidy and whose table manners are not of the best will be led into a trap by his friends, who will inquire until they find a meat which the person says he doesn't like. Then they will say to him, What's the matter? Don't the gravy match your waistcoat? If the person shows resentment, the joke is still funnier, for then his friends have got his goat. Well, I hope I haven't got your goat today, folks, and offered you a bit of alternative news rather than what's facing us right now in 2020. It's probably time, though, that I do bring this bulletin to an end. So, for November 5, 1910, this was the news. the news is a podcast spoken and edited by broderick matthews all source material is taken from the reference newspapers and found online through the national library of australia's trove website links to each of the articles mentioned today can be found in the show notes the theme music is from beethoven's symphony number no. six and sourced under public domain from newsopen.org if you enjoyed today's show, make sure to subscribe and review it on iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcasting app. This Was The News can be followed on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and any email correspondence should be sent to thiswasthenews at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to today's episode. The next episode will be out in a fortnight, released on November 19. I'm Broderick Matthews and this was The News. Thank you.